Welcome to this episode of Women to Women podcast series. Our guest today is Tavana Murphy Burnett, Head of Global Clients and Categories APAC Meta. Tavana, a former management consultant turned startup employee and entrepreneur, has most recently spent the last five years as a global strategy and commercial leader at Meta, helping over 10 million advertisers and 3 billion monthly active users find space to connect, build community, and find value together. Prior to Meta, Tavana led brand and product teams that include Leapfrog, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson, building and launching hundreds of new and innovative products. She served on numerous diversity and leadership councils focused on developing women and black leaders. Hi, Tavana. Welcome to Women to Women podcast. We are so excited to have you with us here today. Thank you for having me. So for our listeners, if you can briefly talk about what you do today. Sure. So I work for Meta, um, which is a social media platform um, that has a number of a number of applications inclusive of Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Messenger. And I lead our uh, global clients and categories business uh, for Asia. So I'm based based out of Singapore. Over the last, let's see, three years, I have been based out of Asia. And before that, also with Meta, I was based out of uh, New York office, which actually is where I am today. But in real world terms, what does it mean that I that I actually do? So Meta has a number of advertising solutions that brand partners like a Coca-Cola or a Johnson & Johnson or a Toyota um, will incorporate into their media planning, into their innovation planning, and my team essentially advises senior leaders, particularly in the the marketing, the innovation, the technology space on how to essentially move their business forward and and reach their consumers on our platforms. Meta is like maybe in the last 15 years, 20 years, it has really come up, right? This whole social media platform, this is one of the biggest. When you went to school, this was not an option. So let's Let's go back a little bit and see where it all started. So where was your childhood and what did you aspire to be when you were around high school level? (laughs) Well, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, and then I grew up. So I graduated and finished high school on Long Island in Nassau County in a town called Uniondale. By the time I graduated and went on to college and then subsequently um, university, as you say, I mean, Facebook wasn't a place and Meta certainly wasn't a place or a thing. In fact, it wasn't a thing when I Uh, completed my MBA back in 2004. I think that was the first year. So this is a really interesting question, right? Because where people end up certainly is not indicative of of where where they started. And I was an English literature major um, in college. So I attended Rutgers University in New Jersey. And what I loved about that experience is it has the distinction of being one of the most diverse uh, campuses in the United States. And so my roommates were from Zambia and from Ghana and Puerto Rico, from Greece. And I ended up, I found myself in a community of students who were from all over the world and really expanded my horizon and my thinking. I intended to study psychology as a major, and I think my first lab requirement, somehow I I, I didn't make it. I thought, "Hmm, this is not going to be the way that I could continue. And in fact, my high school advisor, I remember her, you know, they often ask you if you have guidance counselors, at least in the U.S., uh, that's one of the things that they had. And we did a lot of focus around programs or schools that had psychology as a major. And of course, I didn't end up with that being a focus at all. However, 
this wonderful thing called liberal arts, which I fully, fully buy into. Um, I landed in English literature as my major. And for me, just having an opportunity to um, gain really strong analytical skills through all of the readings that we did, being able to write sort of arguments or perspectives and have a point of view. Also studying a wide range of topics, even though it wasn't, you know, as in British literature, it was just literature that was written across a number of things. I mean, we studied everything from the Bible. We didn't study Harry Potter because that wasn't out then, but <laughs> it's top of mind for me because it's something that my daughter um, focuses on these days. But my point is I had a chance to really sharpen curiosity skills, analytical skills, and form point of view and be able to share that across a number of environments. So I really support this idea of you know liberal arts as, a, as an approach, as well as people who go into very specific and technical you know schools, whether that be engineering or, or other topics. I think there are avenues clearly for both. So when you were at high school, you were thinking of psychology. So I'm thinking you wanted to be a psychologist or what, what was the path you were planning to take? And how did that, at what point did it completely change? Well, I, I like I said, I think it changed when I took that, um, it might've been sophomore year. Um, it was a lab course for psychology. I was very much interested in cognitive psychology and how people think and how people learn. It just seemed like it been a topic that would be interesting to explore. Coincidentally, after um, my undergraduate degree, I did end up studying at Columbia for my first master's in instructional technology and media. And the focus there, there was a lot of learning around um, how people learn and how we learn in lots of different, different environments as well as with the emergence of online technologies and web browsers, because that was a thing, now I'm really dating myself, but there was a whole discipline that was coming together of how do we parse information and how do we do that in new emerging platforms, which the World Wide Web as an emerging platforms for everyday consumers or people like you and I um, was a thing. And so I did somehow find my way back to psychology, but it was a much more applied focus at that time than when I was thinking about it back in uh, high school with my guidance counselor. So during this time when you were you know, looking through different options, were there certain people that really helped you make those decisions? They shaped you who you are, or at least told you there's so much more out there? Absolutely. When I was in, when I was at Rutgers University, I had a professor. There's always that one teacher or that professor that kind of sparks for you something. At least that's my story. And I have friends who have that story too. She was amazing in, in terms of, um, I think she was the dean actually of the English literature program. But more importantly, she was someone who, um, hosted events in her home. So she brought together, you know, communities of students, people that we didn't necessarily know. And we talked about all kinds of topics. Um, she really challenged us on, you know, different ways of thinking, historical things that had historically been true, whether that be a canon of, you know, literature that was established, or even things like inviting us to the Women's March, which was my first opportunity, you know, to kind of have this real, have a point of view around things that were 
outward, you know, outside of the classroom and to take a stand on something that was important to me, but honestly, I didn't know as much about, right? Things like Roe v. Wade or just other topics that felt maybe distant and she made them really tangible and helping me to understand that I had agency, which is something I love to you know, share with other people and, and talk about because I think it's so important for women, especially to find their way to find our way into that space of agency, meaning like you can create, you can do, you have the ability to influence, you can make a difference and you can change sort of the course of history or the future. Um, so she was definitely one. The second was my first manager. Um, so I worked for a publishing company, it was a family owned publishing company, Black Enterprise Magazine, which was quite small at the time. But the, the woman that I worked for, she was the marketing. She was a VP of marketing, but she was responsible for essentially generating additional revenue, incremental revenue, ancillary revenue, I think is what we called it at the time um, for the magazine. So she did everything that was outside of the subscription-based business. She was incredible. She was an MBA and there was no one in my family that had done a graduate degree. So I was sort I was sort of really curious about study sort of afforded her. And this idea, because I was a liberal arts major and I had been doing all this this work around, you know, thinking about psychology and thinking about all these other things, this was someone who had pursued a path that felt super tangible and also very a path to success and a path to career and i was just very impressed by her she happened to be another black woman and so that idea of representation mattering in my first boss it really did uh, show up and be true for me so is that why you went the mba path yes um by the time i ended up pursuing an mba i had been so I had already completed a master's program at Columbia. I had been in the workforce for a bit. I worked at um, Ernst & Young consulting firm where I had a chance to travel to places like Basel, Switzerland and London and work on these really um, fascinating projects. I joined a startup organization called E-Link Communications, which was really my first foray into you know the other side of tech. I did that at Ernst & Young, but this was when the first sort of uh, dot com boom, if you will, was um, was around, and I joined that company, having an opportunity to apply a lot of the stuff that I did as far as knowledge management, online learning. Um, we were enabling a lot of the product and solutions for to be understood by the sales teams and also by our external partners. So my job was really to help the teams build a team that would help scale out you know, information about our, our products, our services and solutions. So it was a really nice fit from, you know, where I was to, to, to where the industry um, had a demand and had a need. But the thing that kind of kept gnawing away at me is the actual language of business was something that I had not spent any time studying, you know, frameworks like Michael Porter's focus on strategy and how do you approach that? Or how do you look at a PL and really understand, you know, what does top line and bottom line, you know, what what does that mean? And and how do you think about things like leadership? You know, I had a lot of on the job and a lot of subject matter expertise. And I was applying that in the work that I had done up until that point. But I did the exposure to to my first boss really gave me it kind of kept in the back of my mind 
um, that perhaps there was even more to to learn. And also one of the things which we can get into a bit more why I have been an advocate for something like a professional degree is it gave a level of credibility, it gave a level of confidence, and it also afforded a network that is, I think, something I know, it's something I lean into uh, today. That's fascinating. So what you just really rings a bell, right? There's a book, what got you here won't get you there. Mm. All the skills that you get to a certain point will not make you a good leader. So as a leader, having been in this um, leadership roles for a while, what do you think people should be looking at in terms of soft skill to acquire even early on so that when they get to the stage where they actually have to start looking more like a leader, they're ready? Yeah. And, and it's, it's a really important question that I think has uh, the answers have changed post-COVID, right? My job as a leader pre-COVID and all the roles where I've played a, a leadership role in the past, I would say there were things like collaboration, listening, and decision-making, which probably are a combination of soft and, you know, more more uh, tangible uh, hard skills, if you will. But one of the things that has, I think, come to bear as a result of the last couple of years is a need for a, a depth of empathy, a need for uh, curiosity to better understand the needs of people who um, you're working with and how those needs might change as a result of what has happened, you know, beyond the workforce, as well as kindness. You know, kindness is, uh, we have um, 10 manager behaviors that we focus on at Meta, and one of them is showing care to employees. And it's the number one. If you don't get that right, um, you have a pretty hard time of being successful. I think that is so important. And on paper, you know, sometimes at companies, there are things like values that are put up on the wall, or you may get a training class that will tell you what these 10 manager behaviors are. But post COVID, I think the leadership quality, if you will, that I've had to lean in on the most is really the show care. It's not something that I can say throughout, you know, some of my multiple university educational experiences that I've had to flex as hard or I've had to deeply understand, but certainly leading through the last two years. And my point, I guess, maybe for saying that is there's always going to be a bit of evolution in your journey as an individual contributor or person that, that's creating or building a business or, you know, as an employee. And then certainly as a leader, there are things that you can anticipate and you can spend some time getting foundational um, expertise around. But there will be times where you kind of have to adopt a beginner's mind and be willing to not have all the answers, but to take a few steps deeper into new areas. And for me, empathy, showing care, kindness, inclusion, those are things that I think have created a different set of uh, really good moments for, for me and for the people that I have the, the privilege of working with. Are there certain kinds of roles that you recommend people take early on? Like you mentioned, you know, you took a role in a startup. Yeah. People hesitate to do that later in life because it's hectic schedule and, you know, it, it's a lot. You have to roll up your sleeves and do anything and everything. Are there certain roles like that or jobs like that that you would recommend young people just coming out of school to say, take a job like that, that'll really prepare you for life? I don't know if I have a certain list of jobs, but I would say 
It's kind of important not to be afraid of where you're starting because clearly where you're starting, I mean, it has some bearing maybe on on where you may end up, but it really does, you know, I, I work with entrepreneurs a lot as well. And I've also been one, I've been part of startups. And one of the things and guidelines and principles that we often share is how important it is just to start. I mean, the truth is when people are graduating from university or high school or whatever it is, getting some of those initial jobs can be tough because a lot of times it's about, you know, I, I talk to people now who are looking for internships. It's internship season. The things that they want to do versus the things that are on their resume and maybe they've had, I don't know, a job in their neighborhood, right? Or maybe they've done some counseling work um, at a school or something. But the if you're looking for um, sort of corporate work or even some startup work, um, a lot of times there it's the skill sets, the evaluation of what skills do you have or what experience have you done? And, and sometimes you don't have it. So the advice I would give is to not be as focused on the type of job, but to identify places where you can grow. Your manager and the, the culture of the organization or the space that you work in, even if it's with the group of friends that you're you know, starting something, that's really gonna dictate as much of your, your outcome. It's gonna dictate what you learn while you're there. If someone will invest in you or if someone will give you the latitude and the space to grow, I think those are really important um, you know, first kind of steps to take. Now, of course, I'm sure someone much smarter than me who is a, a recruiter or a guidance counselor or, you know, they will tell you, oh, it's great to get those first analyst jobs or, you know, it's really great to take if you're looking to, to write, you know, take the copy editor role. But I don't know what I would advise myself in my case, right? It wasn't necessarily a specific job, but there were things that I did try to focus on in terms of what could I learn. And once I was in each of those roles, ah, there's a pathway to this. I might want to explore that a little bit more. You also mentioned you've been in Singapore for three years and yes. you have worked in different countries. How does that mobility really shape you and your perspective? Because now you have seen so many different cultures, workplaces. Gosh, it's a really good experience. It has been a tremendous experience for my family. So when I was at um, Rutgers University, so my undergraduate degree, I spent about six months living in Spain. And then I mentioned that I worked Ernst & Young and had a chance to travel you know, internationally as well. And in each of those instances, it gave me appetite for and some information on how to navigate, you know, different cultures and different environments. And also just to learn socially, just getting a chance to um, experience what some of the different cultures were like. Now that I have moved with my family, you know, I think seeing the growth that's happening, not just from a business perspective or from a professional or career perspective, but our center of gravity has completely shifted and how we think about the world or the things that are important to us um, and how we think about community, which is so much more than, you know, where my husband and I are both from New York State originally, but my daughter was born in California and we lived in a bunch of different places and now we live in Singapore. So this community for us is much broader. It is global. It's hard to describe all of the different ways that we have grown, um, but I would highly encourage anyone who's thinking about it to find ways to get close to other parts of the business or 
um, you don't even have to go to another country to be exposed to global business. I highly recommend it. For your daughter, it's quite an experience, right? Moving and new schools, new experiences. And as you said, you, Rutgers was the place where you met a lot of people from diverse backgrounds and, you know, different countries. How has that been for her? And for you as a mom, how has that adjustment been? Yes, nerve wracking is the truth. <laughs> it started off, uh, we actually moved in the middle of sixth grade for her. Um, she was attending school in New Jersey, and then we moved straight to Singapore, which is quite the, the change. So the nerve wracking part was identifying schools and also the fact that she was starting in a or in the middle of a, a year. I think one of the most important things, yes, of course, you, you think about the academics, but I know for many countries uh, around the world, there are amazing international schools where people you know, come together because of work or any number of cross-cultural experiences that they're having. There's no shortage of finding great academic programs. And we were able to find an IB program for her that was a good match. But you do worry about friendships. You worry about what is the social experience going to be. My, I remember my mom was with us. Um, she came out, actually my mom and my dad, uh, they came out to visit us after the first uh, year in the middle of like the first year. And when she went back, they stayed with us for about a month or so. I sent her a, a message and said, I've met some of Corey's friends and I think she's going to be okay. And my mom wrote back and I think you're going to be okay now too. And that was so true. A job where I travel for work now for at least I don't know, nine, nine years or so. Uh, my daughter's 13. So for a good portion of her life, there has often been a focus for me and other moms that are working outside the home of, you know, how is your kid navigating through the day? And in my case, often when I'm on a plane to Mexico or I'm, <laughs> I'm on a plane to Dubai or, or somewhere else, and even, you know, at year, I think that must have been year 11 for her, that still, that still kind of anxiety or guilt that you have as a parent of of am I making the right decision? The balance of the upside and the exposure and the opportunity, you know, how does that play out in her day-to-day -day lived experience? So those are the things I was thinking about. I'm, I'm really happy to say, while everything wasn't, you know, up and to the right, as you see on some of uh, the growth charts for, for business, there was a bit of turbulence along the way. She is learning Mandarin. She was learning French when she was at her other school. She went through a couple of different groups of friends as, as it is with international schools. You know, people sort of come in for a period of time, but then they move on. So you're often saying hello and goodbye to, to lots of different people. But now she has navigated and, and built a resilience um, and a muscle around belonging, around accepting and, and building inclusive communities for other you know, other students and people who are coming in. She's no longer the new student anymore. And I think she is appreciating what this experience is for our family. So if you had a magic redo button, anything in your life, at any point of your life, when would you use that button? Right after um, I went back to work in having my daughter, you know, I had a really difficult time uh, getting pregnant with, with our daughter. In fact, I had, you know, given up after fertility treatments and decided, you know what, we actually have a pretty good life. I need to stop wallowing in this one thing and, and kind of move on. And sure enough, as a story that people don't want to hear, myself included, I didn't want to hear, it was in that moment or in that year that I became pregnant um, with my daughter and I had just started a new role at Intuit. I think about a month in, I went into my um, manager's office at the time, happened to be a woman, and I had to tell her that I was pregnant because I wasn't sure if 
what kind of medical support I might need. So fast forward, after I had Corey, everything was fine, everything was great. But because I was not protected, you know, in the US under the FMLA laws, I think is, you know, you get a minimum of uh, six weeks, things have progressed so much now, right? There's so much more parental leave for for women, for men, parents of, of all forms. Um, but at the time, I didn't have that. And so I struggled with the return to work in the time period that I had to care for my daughter at home. And I ended up going back after six weeks and I cried my eyes out the day that I had to, um, or I chose to drop my daughter to a daycare center um, and return to work. Now, I'm not saying that I would have um, hit the redo button and not return to work, but I think I would have given myself a bit more permission to um, take what I needed in, in that moment. Um, and if I felt like I wasn't ready or she wasn't ready, I, would like to do that over again. Thankfully, I had a mom who had done both sides of that equation. First with me, she returned to work. With my youngest sister, she actually stayed home and opened up a home-based business. And her advice to me is you have a choice. So you can decide you know, to kind of go into workouts outside of the house and that's going to be just fine. And I appreciated having her, you know, her guidance and her lived experience and her lack of judgment in my choice. But if I had a redo button, I think I would have given myself more time. On a personal note, what gives you joy? What makes you happy? My friends. My friends are, you know, oxygen givers for me. They inspire me in so many different ways on how, how they live their life. Some of these friends, some of my closest friends, I've met through work or through business school. And I... I really believe in the power of community and how these networks and community, I talked a little bit about sort of our global community, they stay with you if you're lucky. And I get a lot of joy out of spending time um, with those friends, supporting each other, seeing you know the different life stages that we have, traveling together, laughing um, about you know all the different uh, silly silly moments and good moments that life brings, uh, talking about books together. I still do a lot of reading. <laughs> so yeah, friends for me are a big, big source of joy. Even staying in one place, it's sometimes very hard, especially for women to build a network and stay in touch. Now with you traveling so much for work, having lived in all these different places, how have you kept up with that network? I know you said you travel together and you kind of talk to them quite often, but instances where you said, okay, this is the time I carve out of my day to network with my existing friends. You know, I I have, uh, it's an interesting way that you frame that, right? Because some people do talk about network or networking as a thing to do. And maybe one of the superpowers, if I can be a little less humble in this moment and say, the thing that comes for me naturally is connecting to people. And so I find it, as I mentioned, something that does give me energy. I recognize that it's not true for everyone, but what I will say is what has kept the community and that network alive, if you will, and that friendship circle through different stages of my life alive is the investment of time like you have to show up you have to decide when you're going to be there and you know as the pandemic um, and covid has created that more challenge and more distance for me it's technology so one of the reasons i love and i feel really proud to work at a place like meta or to have been in a space through multiple um, jobs where communication or connectivity is at the heart of it is because it's a fundamental 
human need using things like what we're talking on right now, even though you and I are in two different places, is something that I used. And just being intentional about the times where even if you don't want to get on a Zoom per se, I use Messenger or I use WhatsApp. And sometimes we leave voice messages or you get into a rhythm of the different ways that you can use technology as a amplifier, if you will. It's not a substitute. The very special moments that I can show up in New York or I can show up for Carnival in Trinidad with one of my girlfriends who lives there or you know, do a yoga retreat in Arizona or just go walking in the park every Wednesday with some of my, you know, some of my friends. Those are things that I calendar those things. I make sure that I find the time for it because it does give me joy. It's important to me and I want to show up for my friends. So in terms of women, we have a lot of things we need to work on. People you've worked with or in your teams or other women, are there certain characteristics that you feel make us stronger? And are there certain areas that we need to really look at ourselves critically and say, what, how better can we be in this area? Mm. Well, I was talking to a, a woman that I just hired on my team. We've been doing this trip in New York together. We've been talking about negotiating and asking for what you want. I definitely have seen a, a range of styles um, it doesn't necessarily always break down to a, a sort of a gender dynamic, but there are certainly more women that I have had reporting to me who are less clear, less direct, less willing to express the things that they want, whether it be in terms of their career. We talked about mobility at the at the top of the call. I've been in talent planning discussions where I've heard other managers speak up about women and their mobility preferences and saying, oh, well, she just had, you know, her son. And so I don't think she's um, ready for, for that. Those things infuriate me because I think, gosh, has that manager, and I've often been one that challenged them, especially now that I, uh, you know, that I've done this type of travel or also because I'm a person who's gone back to work very shortly after having a daughter or we see so many women who make a variety of choices, um, which is inclusive of you know, how they're managing their personal life and how they're managing their, their professional, but we need to be given that choice. But in order for us to be given that choice, we do need to express the things that we, we want and negotiate for the things that we also need. So whether that is in the things that we're willing to do in terms of our career or the support that we need, the salary that we're looking for, the advances in um, you know, promotions, all of those things that I know lots of people have talked about, but I've seen it in my lived sort of manager life where I've had many, many more men who will walk into a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me and essentially say, look, I'm looking for a promotion or what will it take? Or I'd like that assignment, or I need to spend time with my family this summer. I mean, it's, it's amazing to me how different it can be in um, women and, and men in, in some cases. So that's one I would say is an area of opportunity. I think, you know, so I'm really careful on, there's a lot of talk I know about women and leadership and the different qualities that we bring to the table. I mentioned empathy, talked about showing care. I do believe that there is an importance of having a variety of skill sets and women, whether we are parents or, or not, can often bring a different energy, can of, often bring a different point of view. And 
the moments where we feel comfortable being that whole person and bringing in those qualities um, into our leadership, it definitely pays off. The reason I say I'm hesitant is because I think it gets challenging when we get pigeonholed as a motherly type leader or someone who is going to play the role that is expected and, and what are some of the consequences when you don't fit into that, right? Or you get yourself kind of, that's the only profile that you can play. So I look for leaders to have a balance of those qualities that sometimes women naturally have more of or for one or express, I should say, for one reason or other. And I do think we can be more empowered when we lean into those from a leadership perspective. Any closing comments for our listeners? Um, we talked a bit about the importance of really nurturing and building your your network and your community um, because it is something that stays with you and, and I really believe in that and how it will show up. The second one for me is that it really is okay to, to begin again and not to be afraid to take, sometimes we, we talk about taking big jobs, but sometimes I think we just need to take roles that will allow us to grow and to have a beginner's mind and maybe fills a deep sort of seated passion or strength that we have, even if it doesn't have the title or the expectation, you know, that other people might might have for us. So those are just things that they have been really helpful guiding points for me in, in my life and my career. I don't know that I always leaned into them, but I do reflect on those now and I try to keep them front and center as I make decisions and, and, and move about. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your insights and uh, all your experiences. Really appreciate it, Tamana, and your time. No, thank you. This is a wonderful program and all the best to, to everyone listening and also to, to Women to Women in, in this uh, program and this podcast.